Wretched Radio begins in three, two, one. I want to mourn the old trees and tell them that we love them. I've looked at clear cuts and burnt forest and I've felt outraged. We are the crowning glory of God's creation, and all of nature was made for us. Nature is more productive because of us, not less. It's time for Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Tell me what's the word I word I was being sarcastic, which is another big word you'll learn in school. What's the word on the street? Central homiletical motif. <laughs> this is Wretched Radio. Perhaps you've heard the theological term. Cut the music, boys. You've heard the theological term central interpretive motif. It answers the question, when I think about God, what do I think of? Or if you want to be grammatically correct, when I think about God, of what do I think? What's the big mm? What drives your understanding about God and how you read the Bible and even go about the business of interpreting Scripture? I would like... To create a new lexicon just for pastors, your central homiletical motif. When you preach, sir, what's the point every Sunday? Do you have one? It's very possible you've overlooked this because you're desiring to be an excellent expositor. And to you, we say salute. But have you pondered what the point is? What are you driving for? You're feeding the sheep, but what are you feeding them? Here's where it can get tricky. We absolutely positively want to feed them knowledge, information, didactics. Friel, we get the redundant, repetitive, repeating it over and over again point. But to what end? What do you want the sheep to think and feel when the sermon is done? Because teaching that doesn't affect the emotions, while it can be somewhat helpful or just stored up for another day, the point of preaching, in my estimation, should cause the sheep to love the shepherd more. Now, here's where it gets a little bit more challenging. That's easily said. Doing it, that ain't so easy. How do you take... A biblical lesson, in our case today, an historical narrative about Jesus Christ, teach theology and yet warm the hearts of his people. I would like to give you an example of that. Pastor Milton Vincent, Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Community Expository Church. I think that's what it's called. It's the (laughs) longest church name in the history of churches, actually. He's a shepherd preacher. I heard this sermon a number of weeks ago, and I've really been anxious to share it with you because I think this comes about as close to the bullseye as you're going to get. This is expository. And yet, as you listen to this, and you're going to hear a lot of this today, because for my money, man, if you don't love the good shepherd more after you hear this, uh, I don't know what it's going to take to warm your cold conservative heart. Pastor Milton Vincent, John chapter 10, he's in a bit of a skirmish with the Pharisees, describing himself as the good shepherd. Listen for expository, but how does this make you feel about Jesus? The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Of course, Jesus is speaking here of his death upon a cross that will happen in six months' time. But he is also speaking about the sacrificial way he goes about caring for his sheep. 
Jesus does not live for his own selfish, individual pleasure and ease. He lays down his life every day for the good of his sheep, and he will continue to do this every day throughout the rest of his earthly ministry, all the way to the cross, because that's the kind of shepherd that Jesus is. D.A. Carson says it this way, and I quote, many people in the industrialized West are inclined to think of shepherds as sentimental beings, perhaps somewhat effeminate, with their arms full of cuddly lambs. But the reality is that the shepherd's job was tiring, manly, and sometimes dangerous. Just ask David, who had to kill a lion and a bear to protect his sheep. Just ask Jacob, who as a shepherd knew what it was like to have the sheep he shepherded be torn apart by wild beasts. In doing his job of shepherding, Jacob says in Genesis 31, verse 40, and I quote, Thus I was. By day the heat consumed me, and the frost by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. Unquote. That's the life of the shepherd. And here in verse 11, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who is good in the way that he lays down his life to guide his sheep and to feed them and to protect them all the way to the cross laying down his life so that his sheep could come to experience abundant life through him. Comparing himself to the religious leaders of Israel, Jesus says, beginning in verse 12, look at this, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. In the world of Jesus' day, it was simply understood by everyone that the hired hand worked and cared for the sheep simply for the wages that he would get for his work. And people understood this, and allowances were made for the fact that a hired hand might abandon the sheep in certain circumstances. In fact, in the Jewish Mishnah, the rule was that if a hired hand sees one wolf approaching the flock, he's obligated to stand his ground and defend the sheep. But if there are two or more wolves, attacking the flock, then it is within the hired hand's right to flee. And he would not be held liable for abandoning the sheep under those circumstances. That's the allowance made for a hired hand who did what he did for the wages he received. But everyone knew that a true shepherd would never abandon his sheep like that because the shepherd owned the sheep and he cared for them. Ultimately, what Jesus is doing here is painting a contrast between himself and the religious leaders of Israel. 
the religious leaders did not care for the people under their watch. They cared more about the wages that they received from the sheep, and they had no qualms about enriching themselves at the sheep's expense. And not only would they not care about wolves attacking the sheep under their care, but they themselves often were the wolves attacking the sheep, just like they were verbally abusing the formerly blind men whom Jesus has saved and expelling him from the synagogue. Jesus says here that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is language that surpasses anything that was ever true in the physical realm of shepherding. Back in this day, a good shepherd would definitely risk his life for the sheep by fighting off wild animals, but his goal was always to try to stay alive, right? So that he could continue to protect his sheep. No shepherd wanted to die. But the kind of language that Jesus uses here implies that the sheep he's responsible for are themselves in danger of death. A danger that can only be removed by him dying in their place so that they don't have to die under the judgment of God. And this is something that the religious leaders of Israel could never do, nor would they if they could have, because they were too occupied with enriching themselves at the people's expense to ever think of sacrificing themselves for the good of those that they should have been caring for. They could not have been more different than Jesus who was willing to lay down his life for the sheep. Mm. Mm. Did you hear the exposition you heard from the Mishnah? You heard about the life of a shepherd. You heard about the Pharisees. So you learn lots of stuff. But you also learn that Jesus is even greater than any good shepherd who willingly lays down his life because that is precisely what the sheep need. Pastor, may I ask you, what is your central homiletical motif? Are you trying to help the sheep love the shepherd more? It's not an easy assignment. It's not. If you you want some practice, two things. Number one, go back and read the Puritans. You say, no, they were just fire and brimstone. Oh, no, they weren't. When they talked about the good shepherd, they did so tenderly, lovingly, affectionately. And you can learn from them. Or, and this is the option that we're going to exercise, we can continue to listen to Milton Vinston from Cornerstone Fellowship, Bible Life Center, Tabernacle, Transformation, Hospital. I think that's the name of his church. It's kind of a long name. To help us love the Good Shepherd more. We'll do that next on Wretched Radio. Busy, busy, busy. Last year, Preborn Ministries provided over 92,000 ultrasounds. 54,000 babies were saved. 69 ultrasound machines were placed. 10 thousand people responded to the gospel. Preborn Ministries, very busy, saving babies, 
saving souls, would you please consider partnering with Preborn Ministries? $28 per ultrasound, five ultrasounds, $140. Yes, they are expensive, but they save lives. And Preborn Ministries uses good equipment with trained specialists, which is why the success rates are so staggeringly high at saving lives with preborn. Please consider supporting preborn at preborn.org slash wretched, preborn.org slash wretched. You know, what used to be a movie is now a sad reality. We're living in a world that's gone absolutely bonkers. So much so that six mads just aren't enough to describe it. Social media may be bombarding us left and right. Our Christian worldview may be under assault, but we have the dynamic duo of Todd Friel and Dr. Nathan Buznitz, and they're coming to the rescue with Wretched Worldview 2, tackling 22 of those pesky, thorny, contemporary issues through a biblical lens, helping us to defend the biblical view on things like sexuality and gender, critical race theory, modesty and apparel, persecution, secular entertainment, environmentalism, 22 issues to be exact. So what are you waiting for? Head on over to wretched.org, grab your copy of Wretched Worldview 2. And hey, while you're there, snag that study guide too, because it's the perfect companion for navigating this mad, 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 mad world with wisdom and grace. I know how you're feeling at the thought of switching from traditional health insurance to MediShare, which is affordable biblical health sharing. That's a big decision, and it can be kind of scary, which is why Mrs. Freel and I researched MediShare and determined, yeah, we can trust this ministry. Christians paying for the health needs of other Christians. It's a magnificent ministry. 98% member satisfaction rate. It's amazing. The average family saves $500 per month. If that sounds intriguing, and I hope it does, please do your research. Visit metashare.com slash wretched, metashare.com slash wretched, or call them and talk to a really nice person at 844-34-BIBLE, 844-34-BIBLE, 844-34-BIBLE. Important dates in Christian history. 1948, the World Council of Churches is formed as an interdenominational body promoting Christian unity and presence in society. Modern ecumenism saw differing denominations work together in spiritual and social causes, but also resulted in the watering down of Christian doctrine. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. My opinion. And remember, as a talk show host, that means it's always a correct opinion. An expository sermon, it must teach, but it also must stir. It is not enough for a sermon to download didactics. Simply teach data, historical narratives, understanding the context, what's going on with the commerce. All of that is needed and right and good. But if it doesn't move the sheep to love the shepherd more, I would suggest to you it is indeed dead letter. Now, it might affect an impact later as the individual learns to apply those truths. But I think a sermon should have a goal that is loftier than just teaching. It should be teaching that moves the individual to say, I love Jesus more now than when I entered this church. Pastor Milton Vincent, Cornerstone Fellowship Bible Center 
life church that's it transformation property <laughs> in Riverside, California has a central homiletical motif that includes not just teaching, but also the affections. And I think his sermon from John chapter 10 captures this just about as finely as you are going to hear. John chapter 10 talks about Jesus Christ being the good shepherd. Listen to the angle and the tone that he takes. I have other sheep among the Gentiles whom I must bring into the fold. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Commentators will tell you that the sheep that are not of this fold are the sheep who are not of the Jewish fold, which means they are sheep from among the Gentiles. And Jesus is saying, I must bring them also. Jesus is driven by a sense of divine imperative and moral necessity to go out and to bring these other Gentile sheep into the fold of salvation. As for these sheep who are from among the Gentiles, Jesus says, they will hear my voice. Many of the Jews of Jesus' day are refusing to hear his voice, but Jesus is promising that he will go to the Gentiles, many of whom will hear his voice as he calls to them, just as many of you in this room heard the voice of Jesus when he called you. By the way, how many of you are Gentiles? Yeah, so this is really good news for all of us. And these Gentile sheep will come out of the various folds that they are in and become a part of the one great flock of Jesus Christ. And as they gather with the sheep of this growing flock of Christ, Jesus says at the end of verse 16, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. They may come from different languages and cultures, and they may feature different skin colors, but Jesus says they will become one flock with one shepherd. Boy, in our world of division today, this is really good news, and Jesus can pull it off. Jesus is talking about the church, right? We all come from so many different backgrounds, yet here we are as one flock together with all of Christ's sheep around the world who are a part of the flock of Jesus Christ. And what unites all of us is that we have the same good shepherd, Jesus. May I ask you a question? If you were given that verse to preach on a Sunday morning, how would you unpack that? Now, certainly, there is more that could be done than what Milton Vincent did. But remember, he is not just on an assignment to unpack every jot and tittle. That can be a temptation for the expositor, for the high-minded theologian. I need to give them everything. 
And I would suggest to you, you don't. And here's why, because even as you go about the business of dutifully preparing and amassing so much information on a particular verse, you're just scratching the surface. Your efforts, as deep and good as they are, don't get to the depths of the verse themselves. So you don't need to feel constrained to give them everything that you read, every commentary that you could cite. It doesn't need to be cited. It can be left on the table. Why? Because there needs to be an end to the sermon. There needs to be a point to the sermon. Where's this going? Why are we doing this? We can receive all kinds of lectures that contain information, and you can go to a TED Talk, and you can learn about biomechanics. I don't even know what that is, but it sounded like it's something smart. And so what? So what? Does does a lecture on biomechanics cause you to go, whoa, I love the good biomechanicalitionist person that invented biomechanics. No, it doesn't. It just gives you some knowledge. And a sermon should give knowledge that leads to loving the one that is the centerpiece of the Bible verse, which is Jesus Christ. How would you have tackled that verse? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Where would you have gone with that? I can imagine going all kinds of ways. There it is right there. So I don't care who you are. You better go through Jesus, because if you don't, the other, the other shepherds, they're liars. They're false teachers, and you need to come through Jesus. That's what he said in John 14, 6. He is the way, the truth, the life. Now, that would be entirely appropriate, maybe delivered a little sternly, but that was right, and that is certainly an option, and it can be said, but my point is that's not what Milton said. Look at what Jesus pulls off. He could have taken us to Roman uh, Revelation, I do believe, 13. Look at every tribe, every tongue, every nation. They're not huddled in corners. They are not Corinthian cliques or, dare I say, 21st century conservative Bible-believing cliques. Look at, what he, look at what he pulls off. And isn't that instructive? And maybe isn't that something that we might remember when we go about the business of debating contemporary issues? We're all going to be together. Our good shepherd is going to make sure that any division we have is erased and that we are going to love one another sweetly and deeply and dearly because we have been loved by the good shepherd. So now we can talk about these issues not as enemies but as beloved friends because we see that Jesus brings us together. And if we go about the business of being cantankerous, critical, condescending, maybe downright mean to one another. Oh, we're undermining the work of the good shepherd. And we have to know that that's not the best way to live. We have to know that because the good shepherd, he's the one who's determined how we should live. And when we live in unity, not ever neglecting the importance of theology, but when we live in unity, well, well, then we're living in light of what the Good Shepherd has accomplished for us. Now, that's different, isn't it? That's just, that's just different. How do you choose? How do you pick which path you're going to take as a preacher? And I think the answer lies in your central homiletical motif. What's the, what's the purpose of my preaching? What's your goal? 
And 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 might I might I suggest if you don't know the answer to that question currently, then take a look at your sheep. How are they behaving? Are they loving each other or are they fighting over patches of the pasture? Are they growing in holiness together or do you see just an awful lot of rank hypocrisy amongst the sheep? You'll, you'll know what the point of your preaching has been because you'll know what you've been feeding the sheep by seeing how the sheep are either thriving or starving. Salute to you, dear pastor. It is so good that we have corrected what has been amiss in so much evangelical whoop de doo preaching. But I would like to suggest now we go another step. Because if we do not, we might, we just might, be driving our own people into the arms of the likes of Joel Osteen. What? How could that be? How could a good expository sermon drive somebody to listen to somebody like Joel Osteen? It's because they know something's missing. I want to, I want to, I want to love Jesus more. And that guy talks about love and he's, he's just, he's positive. So I think I can go find it there. Now they're not gonna, but if a sermon, it just, it bangs and it drives, that is good. That is right. But if the sheep are starving to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, they're going to go looking in very arid pastures and our excellent efforts to be good expositors might just end up having the result that none of us desired. Question, Pastor, what's your central homiletical motif? This is Wretched Radio. Books of the Bible The Apostle John wrote a third epistle commending Christians who were walking in the truth and showing love by their hospitality. He warned against a selfish and diversive man whom he criticized publicly, specifically, and by name. As you continue to walk in the truth, take care to show hospitality to good teachers and avoid bad teachers. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. Challenge, my conservative friend. This is Wretched Radio. Can you drink this in? You're no fool. You say, drink what in? I say, brace yourself for this. The love of God in Christ Jesus. Whoa, 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 whoa. What do you mean drink that in? What kind of language is that? I think it's biblical language that we're to know the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God in Christ Jesus. And we consume it by drinking the word of God. Can you consume what you're about to hear and actually let yourself feel the love of God? That's right. I said it. Feel the love of God. Milton Vincent just getting warmed up for my money. He's in John chapter 10, 21 verses. You're hearing plenty of didactics, but you are about to hear a man who loves the sheep because he loves the shepherd. Why? Because the shepherd loves him so much and he wants the sheep to drink it in and to know how good the good shepherd is. So may I ask you, if it has been a bit since you've felt you've been learning a lot and that's good. But it's been a bit since you have really been stirred. Please just drink this in. Declaration number six, 
my father loves me because I lay down my life and take it up again as he commands. My father loves me because I lay down my life and take it up again as he commands. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. To appreciate what Jesus is saying here, we need to think back on what he said in verses 14 and 15, where he told us that he knows his sheep and his sheep know him just as the father knows him and he knows the father. In other words, Jesus has already told us that his relationship with us is something that flows downstream of his relationship with his father. But now here, quite remarkably, Jesus is saying that the way he goes about caring for us actually flows back up into his relationship with his father and serves as yet another reason for the father to love Jesus. In other words, when the father sees Jesus loving us to the point of being willing to lay down his life for us, the father's heart swells with loving adoration of his son. He loves Jesus for uncountable reasons, but he loves Jesus for the extreme lengths that Jesus is willing to go in loving you. And notice in verse 17 that the father doesn't just savor Jesus' willingness to lay down his life, but he savors the fact that Jesus is willing to lay down his life so that he might do what? Take it up again. Again, in the normal world of shepherding, the sheep are blessed to have a shepherd who's willing to put his life in jeopardy in order to protect them, but no sheep wants their shepherd to actually die right? Because that would leave them without a shepherd. It would leave them unprotected. But when it comes to Christ, it is the very sin of the sheep that brings them under the sentence of death. And their only hope is twofold. Number one, that Jesus dies in their place. And number two, that he doesn't stay dead, right? As John Piper says, and I quote, the story of Jesus' death for his sheep doesn't end with a mangled shepherd lying dead among wolves and sheep left scattered and thirsting and starving in the desert. Why? Why does it not end that way? Because Jesus didn't stay dead. He took up his life again so that he could continue to shepherd his sheep. In verse 18, Jesus emphasizes his own initiative in his death and resurrection. In verse 18, he says, no one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my father. Yes, it is true that Jesus was handed over to death by his father. And yes, it is true that Jesus was handed over by Judas, who betrayed him 
and by Pontius Pilate, who handed him over to be crucified. And yes, it is true that Jesus was killed by the hands of wicked men. But Jesus wants us to know that all those things happened because he laid down his life of his own initiative. And yes, Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 is true when it tells us that the Father raised Jesus from the dead. And yes, Romans 8, 11 is true when it tells us that the Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. But Jesus wants us to know here that his own initiative is involved in his resurrection also. As he says in verse 18, I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is actually an astonishing combination of words. Authority to lay down one's life? I mean, who wants that kind of authority? In ancient times, as well as today, if someone had authority, they used that authority to do what? To preserve their lives and protect their interests and to protect themselves and empower themselves over other people. But here Jesus is saying that he has authority to lay his life down in death upon a cross. The way he talks here would be like a judge saying to a criminal, I have authority to go to prison and get the electric chair for the crimes that you have committed. And I have authority to take up my life again on the other side of that execution. And this is the way Jesus is speaking here. And he uses this authority given to him by the Father, this authority that he possesses entirely for the good of his sheep so that through his death and resurrection, we might be saved and have life. Is it any wonder that the Father loves Jesus so much? Is it any wonder that his sheep respond to his voice and come to him when he calls? Actually, when you consider the supreme goodness of Jesus displayed in these verses, the real wonder is that anyone would refuse to come to him. Amen. Amen. That's an altar call. That's, that's, you're hearing it. Doesn't sound like one, but that is a call to hear the voice of the good shepherd. And it's packaged with a frame that says, why would you not want to be in this picture? Why would you not want to be with this shepherd? Why would you delay? And that's precisely where Milton Vincent is now going to spend about seven minutes pleading with people to come. Which leaves us with plenty to wonder at when we see how many in Jesus' audience here in John 10 respond to his words that he's just been speaking. Observe what John says in verse 19. A division occurred. Again, among the Jews, because of these words that Jesus has been speaking. And on one side of this division, in verse 20, 
John says, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Notice who these many speakers are speaking to here. These critics of Jesus are noticing that some among them are mesmerized by Jesus' words, and they're listening to him with rapt attention. And in a panic, they immediately turn their focus on these listeners to Jesus and immediately try to get them to stop saying, he is a demon. He's insane. Why do you listen to him? Literally, what they're saying in the Greek is, why do you hear him? Jesus earlier said that his sheep do what? They hear his voice. And it seems that's exactly what some of his listeners are doing, and they're being criticized for hearing him. Got to tell you, if you do not hear the beating heart of an under-shepherd, he's not mad at anybody. He's not accusing anybody. He's wooing people. And we will continue to let Milton Vincent do just that, perhaps for you, next on Wretched Radio. So, you're not convinced of the importance of training men to rightly divide the word of truth and fill pulpits internationally? Fine. Then we'll let Paul Washer convince you. It is so important, not just important, it's absolutely essential to have a trained expositor of the scripture in every church. When we read through the book of Acts, we can see that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, advances as the word of God advances. Would you please consider joining the Master's Academy International in filling empty pulpits with men who can exposit the scriptures and advance the kingdom of God It's a magnificent ministry with a generational impact. Please learn more about supporting TMAI at wretched.org slash pastor. Wretched.org slash pastor for the Master's Academy International. Hey, thanks for listening to Wretched Radio today. You know, if you've supported us in the past, we just want you to know how grateful we are for you because you have helped us to produce culturally compelling, biblically sound productions like Wretched, Road Trip to Truth, and Transformed. But can I be honest with you for a second? We miss you. You may have been a donor in the past, and we are grateful for that, but we would love it even more if you became a consistent monthly gospel partner. You see, our mission is to stand firm in the gospel by reaching millions all over the world It's a big goal. It's a big feat. But we know with your help, we can achieve it on an even larger scale. That's why we'd like to ask for your prayerful consideration to becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner. Together, we can stand firm and reach millions. So what do you say? Are you ready to join us in standing firm in the gospel? Just visit wretched.org slash donate or text the word wretched to the number 44321. Wretched. Amazing grace. Amazing gospel. Ah, some good news. Two encouragements from the Tomorrow Clubs. They have hundreds of weekly kids meeting clubs in Eastern Europe, but now they've expanded to Africa. 
And the kids are swarming the Tomorrow Clubs. They have never seen greater attendance than the hundreds of new clubs that they are opening up in Africa. That should encourage all of us. The gospel is going forth and reaching kids in unreached places. Encouragement number two, would you like to become a Tomorrow Clubs ministry partner? Your support will help the Tomorrow Clubs open up even more Tomorrow Clubs and reach even more kids with the gospel. Please consider becoming a ministry partner at tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Tomorrowclubs.org slash wretched. Titles of Christ. In the Bible, Jesus is given many titles that teach us about who he is and what he has done. Jesus is called the firstborn. Jesus was the firstborn from death, resurrected that we may have life. And he is the firstborn over all creation, the preeminent son, through whom we are adopted as sons and daughters of God the Father. This is Wretched Radio with Todd Friel. This is just a metaphor, and this is Wretched Radio with a question. When you sit through a sermon, are your arms perpetually folded? I don't mean physically, but your heart, the steel gate of your mind. Is it closed? Do you have your defenses up? That isn't a terrible thing. We do need to be like the Bereans who judge every word that is spoken. But having said that, maybe just maybe there are times when you are sitting underneath the preaching of a faithful under-shepherd that you don't need to always have your dukes up. Just listening for the wrong preposition. Listening for the Wrong understanding of the aorist tense in the Greek language. Listening so that you can find fault. Maybe, just maybe, we need to figure out a way to maybe just have one arm folded. You say, Friel, you can't have one arm folded. I'm telling you, this is just a metaphor. We need to be searching the scriptures even as we hear them exposited. But if we are simply straining Every gnat that is spoken from the pastor's mouth, we might really miss the forest for the trees. Or if we're going to just destroy illustrations, the, the pine needle for the trees. Just, just, I, I, hey, hey, oh, what do you mean by that? Okay, I, I get that. And, and we should be aware of that. But if that's all that we're doing during a sermon, I'm telling you, we are going to be the most curmudgeonly of people. And don't we see that sometimes? I, I, I think there's a reason that the stereotype frozen chosen has some legs to it. We do love theology. We do. We, we, we do want to make sure that no error is preached. But if that's all we're about when we're listening to a sermon, what are we going to become? What have we become? May I ask you a question? The initial love that you had for Jesus when you got saved, maybe before all of the theological differences and distinctions amongst Christians were made clear to you, before you started to really understand the depths 
of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How were how your affections? Jesus, when he writes to the churches in Revelation, points a finger to the Ephesian church. Hey, you're doing so good. You're making sure that your theology is pure. But here's the problem. You've lost your first love. Now, does Jesus say, stop being concerned about theology? No, he doesn't. Because we are all of those admonitions to contend, to vie for, to be the pillar and foundation of the truth. They're all in place. But if we have lost our first love, then, uh uh-oh, we're doing something wrong. We're just doing something wrong. Now, I have noted before that your affections are going to change and grow and deepen. So let's keep that in view, too. That initial ecstasy that you perhaps felt upon knowing, wait, what? He died for for me. Serious. He died. He died for me. It's not about ginning that up and trying to recreate that. Your love for Jesus, it should be maturing. It should be growing. It should be deepening. And it's going to manifest itself differently than it initially did. But my question is, is it? Might I suggest you and I, we can keep our theological arms folded, but that's not all we should be doing. Pastor Milton Vincent, I think, is one of those men, and there are many, who are under shepherds who want people to love the good shepherd more. He's theologically sound. You won't punch a hole in any of his theology. You won't. Go ahead. Taught at the Master's Seminary. Hebrew, no less. He's he's an academician, but he's also a pastor on a mission to help the sheep love the shepherd more. This is the conclusion to his message about the good shepherd. Let's let's put our guards down for a moment and just drink this in so that our affections might be stirred. The text says others were saying, this is the listeners to Jesus, others were saying These are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Notice how these listeners are impressed by two things about Jesus. For starters, Jesus has opened the eyes of the blind men, and they know that no demon could ever do that or would ever want to. But they are also moved by the power of Jesus' words, saying these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. Demon-possessed people don't talk this way. No demon-possessed person could speak such beautiful words about loving his flock and sacrificially laying down his life for the sheep like Jesus is speaking here. So these are the two wonderful conclusions that these hearers of Jesus are arriving at. And it's very promising that they're willing to speak their conclusions out loud to people whom they know hate Jesus and view him as demon-possessed. The truth is that once you determine that Jesus did not heal the blind man through the power of a demon, you really have only one option left, and that is that he did that miracle by the power of God. 
And once you've arrived at that conclusion, you've just stepped onto a train rolling downhill towards the inevitable conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah. And it seems that these hearers of Jesus who are speaking in verse 21 are well on their way to entering into the fold of salvation. So as we observe this division between these members of Jesus' audience, I would just close by asking you this morning, which group are you in? Are you dismissive of the words that Jesus has spoken in our passage today? Have you heard him? Do you disagree with Jesus' claim to be the good shepherd? Or do you think that you are the good shepherd of your own life, who can shepherd your own life better than Jesus can? By the way, do you realize that that's what all of us are saying every time we willfully go astray from Jesus? In such moments, we are essentially saying, Jesus is not the good shepherd. I am. What arrogance. Or are you in the second group who hears these words from Jesus and you feel yourself resonating with them and you feel yourself being drawn to this one who is so good? If Jesus is speaking to you today and calling you to himself, I urge you to come to him and respond to him and believe in him and call upon his name for salvation and begin to learn what it is really like to be led and fed by the ultimate shepherd who will always treat you right. Always. And he will never let you down. Never. Can you take that? Can you spend time reminding yourself that your Savior is a good shepherd? Pastor, are you feeding that good news to your sheep? And if you happen to be a sheep and the under-shepherd of your local congregation isn't quite there yet, and he's teaching, and there's a lot of information, then you're, you're just going to have to work a little harder to digest this yourself. But I want to encourage you to do just that, to return to your first love, not the ecstatic feeling, but to loving Jesus more. So if you're hearing a lot of good expository preaching that's very information-based, then you're, you're going to have to move it down to your heart. You're, you're going to have to make that application. Now, that's not ideal, but if you're not doing that, if the pastor isn't doing that for you, then you're going to have to, to a degree, feed yourself. He, he, he's put the straw, hey, whatever sheep eat, in front of you, and you're just going to have to chew on it and digest it yourself. But regardless of whether your shepherd is doing that or not, maybe just maybe today, is a good day to ask the question, 
Have I lost my first love? Am I no longer amazed that Jesus would die for me, a sinner? Am I no longer in awe of his amazing grace? Until tomorrow, go serve your king.